lot of people, I guess you've talked about a daughter, you, you mentioned her earlier, mm-hmm. who uh, was on a mission when you were starting RFM, and and uh, and I guess you've expressed sometimes at Sunstone and other places, maybe on your podcast, that maybe the relationship has sometimes had some tough times because of what you're doing versus where she believes. Lots of listeners wrote in and asked if things have gotten better, how's your believing daughter, your RM daughter? I know that family is sensitive and you want to be private about these things. So is there anything you do want to say about uh, your daughter and your relationship with your daughter? Um, There really isn't, but I will say these two things. The first is that the only reason I brought that up in the first place was at the Q&A at Sunstone because somebody brought up the anonymity thing, right? And that's always the reason that it was, and now it doesn't have to be that way. And, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, But as far as the relationship, no, it's where it has been. I'm still persona non grata, incommunicado, no, no communication whatsoever. Okay. Um, I hope that changes, but, um, you know, uh, we... And is that on your, by your choice or by hers or by hers. both? So she's kind of... Completely hers. Like Joe's witness. She made it clear. She shunned you. Um, it's a complicated thing, and that's where it gets messy, okay? Because I am divorced from her mother, all right? And you can understand how messy those things can get, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners can. So it's probably multi-layered, too. Yeah. I do know that at one point I talked to her because um, she had found out, she'd just come back from her mission, actually. And at this point, I had been on uh, radio silence for like four months. You know, I would write her these lengthy emails, very faith-promoting emails, weekly. And then she put me on radio silence because she found out that... um, uh, well, there were things that were happening and we were separated, her mom and I. And, but then we're radio silence, right? And then all of a sudden she drops by my office after she's been picked up from the airport. And I knew that was the day, but I had no idea she was going to come by. And we sat down, we talked, there was tears, there was hugging. That was the first time I was uh, disconnected from by this uh, particular daughter. And we talked and uh, she knew by that time that uh, I was doing the the Radio Free Mormon thing, right? And I may have indicated there how it was she found out, but regardless, uh, she had found that out. And she also knew, of course, that I'm getting divorced from her mom. And we're talking about both of those things. And it was clear to me that she was concerned about both, but she definitely understood about uh, my divorce from her mom because, I mean, she grew up in the house. It's not like she didn't know what was going on for her whole life and the dynamics involved. And so... It's like she was really, she was understanding about that, but it's like, you know, this thing about this Radio Free Mormon and kind of you're an apostate, you know, she used the word. And I'm just kind of laughing with her and trying to make it light. I mean, I'm seeing her for the first time. I'm glad to be seeing her. And then I just asked her directly because I was getting this distinct impression. I said, I said, sweetie, I'm getting the impression that you are more concerned about me leaving the church than you are me leaving your mom. And she looked at me and said, yeah, I am. Boom, exactly right. And I thought, boy, does that tell us a lot about Mormonism? You know what I mean? And it's just the same triangle I was talking about, right? That connection with the church is more important than any other connection in the family, right? Even to the daughter. And so we had some communication after that. And then, um, 
things happened and she went ahead and cut off communication again in February of 2018 and I haven't heard from her since. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So it's, it's been twice that it happened mm. and I, there are probably other reasons involved, but, um, I think that's probably one of them. And I know this was the main reason the first time and, uh, you know, she doesn't want to talk, so I can't find out anything more specific than that. Okay. But it's been a hard time for her. Uh, I've left the church and I'm radio free Mormon and you know, her parents got divorced and so she's been going through a rough time. She's been having to deal with a lot of things, but she's back from her mission. So what? She's 21 when she came back. And, um, you know, I hope she's doing well. Hmm. I'd love for her to call me. Yeah. She wants to. I'm, so I'm sorry. always open. Yeah, sure. I'm so okay. sorry. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, a lot of people have asked you to opine on what you think the most damning evidence against Mormonism is. Do you even want to talk about that? You- yeah, sure. I will very briefly. Okay. It, it's the most obvious thing. And here's the thing that when you're a lawyer and you're dealing with a case and you're prepping it for trial and you start living with this case, interviewing witnesses, going over the police reports and the statements for the third, fourth, fifth time, and you start seeing new things in it, the more familiar you become with it, the more you can see. The problem is, is that the things that you see after the fourth or fifth time are not the most important things, almost as a rule. The things that are the most important things and that are going to be to the jury who are not going to get as deep into the police reports as you have in preparation for the trial is the thing that hits you, boom, right off the bat. I've made that mistake before. I try not to make that mistake. That's one of the dangers of over-preparing is that you go way beyond anything a jury thinks is important because now it becomes important to you because you become so familiar with it. I see this over and over. The main thing about the uh, Mormonism is the King James Version in the Book of Mormon. It's the smoking gun. And it's something that I knew about forever as an apologist, and I read Hugh Nibley about it, I read this person about it, and they had things to say, but they never really convinced me. They were never convincing arguments, but I would still repeat them because you got to have something to say, right? Uh, But yeah, it's the smoking gun. What about it? About a book that is not produced until 1830 when it comes off the press that is uh, allegedly written by a group of Jews who leave Jerusalem in 587 BC. It says 600, but I think the fall to Babylon was around 587. Anyway, 600 BC roughly. They leave, they write it. Uh, They're over here in the Americas till 400 BC. They write it. They're Jews. They're Jews. And yet the King James Version is all over it. And not just the King James Version. You don't even have to go to Deutero-Isaiah. Okay, because you'll find some fringe people out there, one of them Mormon, uh, one of who's one of the September six, right, who will still argue for the fact that uh, the for the unity of Isaiah, that's all written by one that's author. That's Gileadi. Boom. <laughs> Very good. Um, and so you can find that. But the reason he argues that is totally theologically driven. You know what I mean? I'm not saying he doesn't believe it, but the reason he goes there is for the same reason that John Gee and Carrie Muelstein uh, go to such lengths to defend the Book of Mormon, uh, Book of Abraham, right? Those Egyptologists, they go there because that's the goal. They've got to defend it. And I think that Abraham Gileadi, for all of his intelligence, I understand he's an incredible scholar, is arguing for this because the Book of Mormon requires it. All right. Because the Book of Mormon quotes from things that were written by the first Isaiah and also Deutero Isaiah. And the problem is that first Isaiah was written before they left Jerusalem. Deutero Isaiah is written after they leave Jerusalem. And there's possibly a Tritero Isaiah as well that's written even later. But they never go back to Jerusalem to get more plates. 
That's the problem. How can they find out what's being written by people after they leave Jerusalem? You don't even have to go to Deuteronomy Isaiah because you've got the New Testament. And the New Testament King James Version in the Book of Mormon is, uh, I believe, the hugest problem in the Book of Mormon and for Mormonism. And is that just because how would, how, why should the Nephites be able to know the name of Jesus if the Jews who were actually, who Jesus literally descended from, mm-hmm. weren't able to know the name of Jesus? Why are, why are Jews in America getting baptized and having faith in Jesus and talking about faith, repentance, and baptism and, and resurrection when the Jews weren't able to do that in, in the Holy Land? That's is, that, a, is that what you mean, or is it other things? It, it's something else, but that's a variation of it, and it's closely related to it. The, the fact that the Jews know all about the New Testament Jesus before the New Testament times, right? Uh, did I say Jews? I mean the Nephites. Right. Okay, in the Book of Mormon, they've got a pre-Jesus, they've got a full knowledge of Jesus. They know about his birth, his baptism, his resurrection, the whole nine yards. They know it all. Mary is going to be his mom. They know that 600 BC. There's no uh, there's no sort of commensurate knowledge evinced in the Old Testament by the prophets of God there about Jesus. In fact, there's really no mention of Jesus at all in the Old Testament, is my opinion. All there is is a lot of Christian hyper-interpretation of Old Testament texts to try and get it to prophesy about Jesus in order to demonstrate that Jesus really was the Messiah, and Matthew was a master at that. And we continue to do that today, so do a lot of other Christian churches. But I think that anytime you see Jesus in the Old Testament, it's being read into the Old Testament. Not so the Book of Mormon. It's out there for everybody to see. What I'm actually talking about is, the classic example would be the Sermon on the Mount, the King James Version of the Sermon on the Mount, as depicted in Matthew chapter 3, verses 5, showing up in 3 Nephi chapter uh, 12 through... 12, 13, 14? Yeah. yeah, 12, 13, 14, I think, uh, right when Jesus shows up. Now, this is after the resurrection, so it's after his ministry over in the old world, so at least uh, it would have happened by then, except when you start getting into more biblical studies, you find out that it's not written at all by then, it's written much later, and frankly, he never gave the Sermon on the Mount. This is just a collection of random sayings of Jesus that were preserved at some point, written down, and these sayings end up getting interposed into different narratives, okay? Uh, Scholars generally tend to think that the earliest gospel account was a sayings gospel of Jesus. There's no narrative. There's no birth. There's no ministry. There's no death. There's no resurrection. It's just sayings, like a bunch of, you know, famous sayings of Ben Franklin or Bartlett's quotation book. You've got the sayings down. That was the important thing, and that's why scholars were so excited when they found the gospel of Thomas, which I think was in the Nagamati, Nagamati, 1945, um, and they find the gospel of Thomas, they're just thrilled because, my gosh, here is a, it's a sayings gospel, right? There's 114 sayings and so of Jesus, and that's all there is. So they think this might be very early. Um, some still think it's early. Some think maybe it's not that early, but it's a sayings gospel. In other words, they were able to predict from their study of the New Testament and other extant manuscripts what it was that they were going to find, and they found it in the gospel of Thomas, which was really exciting. Now, the reason I'm talking about that is because you got all these sayings, um, you can put some into different stories. You got some left over. It's like spare parts after you put something complicated together. Okay, what are we going to do with all these spare sayings that we weren't able to put in stories? <laughs> they become the sermon now that Jesus gives on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why there's no thread to the Sermon on the Mount. There's no beginning, middle, end. There's no logical connection between them. You'll have sections in which they're, that make sense together, but the, but the whole thing doesn't make sense. It's not a sermon. It's a collection of random and uh, disassociated uh, disconnected sayings that were attributed Jesus put in one sermon. So what is that doing showing up in the Book of Mormon now? 
That's the question. Almost verbatim. <laughs> Almost verbatim. There's a few little changes. And when I was an apologist, believe me, I focused on the changes. I'm focusing on that gold that I'm getting out of the pan and not on all the silt, right? But it's basically verbatim. It is the King James Version of the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew with a few uh, variations put in. And then you've got stuff from Paul, you know, from 1 Corinthians. You, got, you find that uh, in, in the Book of Mormon as well. And it's very, very clear that there is a huge dependency. The term that is used nowadays is intertextuality, right? Intertextuality between the Book of Mormon and the New Testament. And uh, lesser minds would call it plagiarism. Okay? There's a huge borrowing. And this leads it into a number of problems, and I'm not going to go into all of them. I will say, for one thing, that a number of years ago, um, I had fought so hard against this, this obvious problem with the Book of Mormon that what we tend to do as a church is ignore it. You know, you got to ignore these problems when you're whistling past the graveyard. So ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. Don't talk about it. Don't really look at it, right? But then I found out that if I stopped doing that and actually became okay with looking at it, that the Book of Mormon actually does some very interesting and somewhat sophisticated textual things with what it's quoting from. Uh, the King James Version of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I wrote something about that at some point and put it up on the blog. So there's very interesting things to be found, but it doesn't change the fact that, boom, it's there. And one of the problems with that is, is that it was Sidney Sperry who back in the 1940s or 50s, professor at BYU, eminent scholar, like he was Nibley before Nibley was Nibley. He um, does this uh, book, it's called Problems, Book of Mormon Problems, and he talks about this. And I'd gotten this, it was out of print, and I'd got it back when I was an apologist and read through it. And he posits this theory, Joseph Smith must have had a Bible. Because it's so obvious, even Sidney Sperry, and you'll find other apologists today who go along with that theory because it is so freaking obvious. He had to have a Bible with him. And he had to open it. Now, Sidney Sperry, from the apologetic point of view, and you've heard this before, well, Joseph Smith has sort of a familiarity with the Bible, and he's going along and he's quoting uh, Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah's coming up. Okay, well, I will open up the King James Version of Isaiah, and I will start reading out of this Bible, and I'll compare it with the gold plates, right? This was back before we had the seer stone, so it was easier to compare with what the gold plates were saying. And I will go with the King James Version translation, except where my inspiration from the gift and power of God tells me it's different on the gold plates. You've heard that before, right? And the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. But still, you've got to have this open Bible in front of Joseph Smith. And he's using it throughout for Isaiah, for the uh, Matthew, uh, Sermon on the Mount, for a lot of things. Here's the problem. This is where things get worse and worse. And this only came to me a couple of years ago. I was talking about it with Bill on the phone. He said, here's the problem. Number one, nobody mentions that Joseph Smith had a Bible open while he's dictating the Book of Mormon. And it's out there. I mean, this is not even, you know, a small Bible for crying out. This is a huge Bible. This is a family Bible. It's hard to conceal a Bible in a top hat. It's out there in front of everybody. We've long since dispensed with the idea, which was incorrect, that during the translation of the Book of Mormon, at least the Book of Mormon as we have it today, there was a curtain between Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. The plates were out there in front, you know, on the table, basically in front of God and everybody. There was no means of disclosure or keeping it hidden, which itself was problematic because what's going on behind the curtain, but there was no curtain. So there's a big Bible out here on the table. You've got witnesses to the translation. You've got Oliver Cowdery. You've got Emma Smith. You've got whoever else happened to be there. And they've left their statements. Nobody mentions a Bible being open. And in fact, it's Emma Smith who goes so far as to say, 
he did not use any books or manuscript. Remember that her statement that she's giving at the end of her life, um, uh, that's also where she talks about he never practiced polygamy, but she talks about the translation of the book. She was there, it was remarkable to her. Joseph Smith could not dictate a well-worded letter, much, le much less a book like the Book of Mormon. He had no books, he had no manuscripts with him. This is all being done just by the gift and power of God. Now this becomes very problematic. Because not only do we have an absence of somebody mentioning the Bible, which itself is eh, kind of problematic, we've got a witness who says there was no book, there was no Bible is what she's saying. So now what do we have? We've got Joseph Smith who's obviously using a Bible. The Bible has to be open. Other people have to be aware of the Bible. Nobody's mentioning the Bible in their testimonies. And at least one witness who was there, and we know she was there, and her name is Emma Smith, says there was no Bible. There was no book. There was no manuscript. And now we have to say, what is going on? We have got witnesses for, for some reason, and I think it's probably more psychologically, psychological than actively trying to deceive everybody. I think it's psychological. I think it's this thing. This is true. And so we, what do we want to do, John? Just ask Elder Packer. We tell the faith-promoting side of it. And this other stuff that looks hinky, you know, it might look hinky, but that's only because you don't know like I know that it's true. And therefore, because this might lead you away from the church and make you think it's hinky and not as true as I know it is, I'm going to omit this. And I'm even going to say it didn't happen. So what is going on? Now, all of a sudden, all the witness testimonies are up in the air as far as I'm concerned, because I can't trust them. Yeah. And that's above and beyond her saying that Joseph Smith didn't practice polygamy when she knew darn good and well he did, even though she had a very, you know, strained relationship with that. And by the way, I apologize here to Denver Snuffer and Rock Waterman, if you're watching. We sometimes have discussions about that because, of course, Rock believes that he did not practice polygamy. And this was just a story that was made up by Brigham Young and other cohorts who wanted to practice it and therefore said, we're going to practice it now and we're going to say that Joseph Smith is the one who authored it. Right. I have trouble <laughs> believing that. Rock Waterman knows that I have trouble believing that. So I, but we're still friends anyway. I hope we are. <laughs> Any, that, that was great. Any other big smoking guns that you want to mention or is that, nope. the, that's it? That's it. Okay. That is it. And you know, uh, more and more people are waking up to the fact that the leadership of the church has been resting on Joseph Smith's laurels for too long. President Nelson said, Hey, next year, huge year, 2020, it's going to be April. It's going to be 200 years. It's going to be the bicentennial. Since Joseph Smith's first vision, right? So we're going to have a huge blowout. They have been resting on Joseph Smith's laurels for 200 years. And regardless of what you think of Joseph Smith, where you think he was just a fraud, whether he's a, what do you call it, a sincere uh, dupe or um, uh, what is it that Dan Vogel calls it? The um, pious fraud. Thank you. The pious fraud. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. He comes to know what he's doing. Or he's really doing something. You know, he's really in connection with something. Regardless of what you think about him, he's dynamic, he's charismatic, he's producing stuff. He's producing the Book of Mormon, he's producing Revelations, he's, he's going crazy. He's doing all sorts of amazing things. In the space of 14 years, between the time the Book of Mormon gets produced and the time that he uh, gets killed, okay? So, and what, what, what do the leaders do today? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They've got nothing, but they have been riding his coattails for so long, and more and more people are finally waking up to the fact that they are not Joseph Smith. They're not even pretending to be Joseph Smith. They're not even trying to be Joseph Smith. You know, they've had the seer stone for how long in the church vault? 
forever. And finally, word gets out that enough people know about it, we'll bring it out for a special photo op in 2015 in the Enzyme, right? And back into the vault it goes. Well, what does that tell you? They've had it all along. They've known about it all along. Yeah. They know all sorts of stuff that they don't want the membership to know. They've got a track record. This is what so many of my episodes expose, is the very fact that they have been hiding history from the members of the church for decades and decades and decades, and they are only producing it now with the essays and only saying as much as they can, as much as they feel they have to, because they've been caught. And they've been dragged kicking and screaming to the transparency table because of the internet. That They're, was going to be my next question. Like, Russell M. Nelson's making all these flurry of changes. He's yeah. shortening church from three hours to two. He's rolling back the November 2015 policy. Mm -hmm. He's... Um, you know, trying to, he's allowing women to be witnesses in, in baptisms and confirmations. He's, uh, you know, doing all sorts of things to try and make the church more appealing. Uh, he's allowing, uh, c you know, civil weddings to happen mm -hmm. so that non-members non and people out of the church can attend. Uh, and then there's the whole essays and the transparency <clears throat> There's, there's a lot, what some would say, there's a lot of very positive changes being made that, uh, frankly, a lot of us in the progressive and post-Mormon communities have been calling for for years, if not decades. How much credit does Nelson get for making the church better, for making it more what you and I would want it to be in, in your mind? Um, I want to give him as much credit as I can. I cannot help but notice the fact that almost all of these changes uh, denote a shrinking church. So Maybe not all of them, but almost all of them denote a shrinking church or a reaction to social criticism that has gotten out there into the public now, and now the church feels it needs to make a change. I think it's great that the church has made these changes. I think it's great that President Nelson has made these changes. Let me be clear about that. He did it because he was forced to. That's the only reason he's made any of these changes. And uh, three hours to two hours, combining elders quorum and high priests, we know what's going on out there where they are taking uh, stakes and reorganizing them with fewer wards so that... Uh, they can try and, uh, excuse me, they're decreasing the membership in wards and they're reorganizing stakes so that they can try and give the semblance, the outward semblance that the church is not shrinking. They're playing with all sorts of numbers, all sorts of statistics. I did a three-part episode on that called Lies, Damn, Lies, and Statistics in order to try and make it look like they're still growing and they're still uh, strong when they're not and they know they're not but he's making all these changes it was henry david thoreau i think who said for every hundred men hacking at the leaves of a problem there's one hacking at the roots okay president nelson is not at the roots he's hacking at the leaves what he's doing is rearranging chairs on the deck of the titanic that's all he's doing and hacking at the root is those two things i said tell the truth and apologize for what you've done that's wrong and it's hurt people. Makes sense. Um, couple, couple other just really quick things. Um, let's see. 
Someone asked, Deidre wrote this, what do you require in a religion? Uh, does it need to be historically true? What kind of structure should it have? Uh, you know, many wonder, many who leave wonder what should be next, or if there's a better church, what should we look for? Hmm. So do you, do you see a role for religion in the world? Do you oh, absolutely. See, do you have the belief that a church could meet your standards for goodness and truth? Are you, have you affiliated with another church? Um, do you have a set of beliefs or theology? And in what type of church could earn your allegiance or participation? Hmm. That's a great question. I will tell you that um, there are members of my family, my son's family that he's married into, one of my sons, uh, who have a definite affinity for Denver Snuffer and the Remnant Movement. They're very active in that. They really like that. That appeals to them. Wow. I mean, Mormonism trains people to be appealed to that, and then they don't give them what they train them to want. And so they're very uh, much a part of that. Um, I am not so much. I've uh, had communication with Denver Snuffer. I've read two of his books. I've written a book review of one of his books. I think he's a very interesting person. He's a very smart person. I'm sure he's a very spiritual person. Uh, but I do not want to become enmeshed in another orthodoxy. All right. So I didn't finally manage to get out of one orthodoxy in order to join another, which is what I, you know, if you love Denver Snuffer, I love him too. He's a great guy. God bless you. For me personally, okay, the way I put it is I did not finally escape from Alcatraz to turn myself in at San Quentin. I'm not about to go back into another Orthodox religion. Now, the question asks, I think, for more than that, what would be an okay religion? Uh, an okay religion is what works for you. That's what it is. But it has to have one feature, which I will not negotiate on, okay? For a religion to be good, it has to have a point at which you've learned everything you can from this religion and you are encouraged to leave and actually even shoved out of the nest. Any church, any person who refuses to do that and instead wants to hold you in tight, even though you've learned everything there is to learn, and you've learned it a million times, which is why you find church so boring and oppressive. But no, you cannot leave because we have all the answers, and there are no answers to be had and no truth to be had outside this religion. That's what I have a problem with. So that would be the thing I wouldn't negotiate with on any church. Any church that I think would be acceptable to me would have that as its principle, that it's there to teach people everything it has, but once they have learned everything that the church has to give, boom, you're out of here. Go on, learn more. And I think that's one of the real problems with Mormonism, is that you are stuck. You are stuck there, and you're supposed to stay there from cradle to grave, from birth to earth, from sperm to worm. You are in the Mormon church, and they have got nothing to give you, except every month you're supposed to check the same boxes, check them again, check them again, check them again, and you learn the exact same stuff in Mormonism when you are 90 as when you are nine. In Mormonism, you never really graduate from seminary. There is no meat. They talk about milk before meat. Have you heard that, John? Yes, all the time. There's no meat. Yeah. There is no meat. Where's the beef? <laughs> Where's, the, Where's beef? the beef? There is no meat. That is just an excuse as to why it is that they're not going to tell you the problem stuff about Mormonism. Milk before meat. There's no meat. You're just supposed to be on milk for your entire life. 
Um, what about Community of Christ or you know uh, the the Unitarian Universalists? Well, we're about to, yeah. Oh my gosh. Sorry. I tell you what, I know a lot of people have gone there. If it works for you, great. This is what I'm about. Yeah. If it works for you, fantastic. Community of Christ, wonderful fellowship. People need fellowship, uh, you know, unless you're an ascetic or something or a hermit out in the desert. And some people, they like that. And if they like that, that's great. Um, I am just not in a position where I am wanting to affiliate myself with any uh, particular religious group. I'd be happy to go to a church. I think there was an Easter uh, a couple years ago. I went to a Lutheran church. I really enjoyed it. There was a, a woman, uh, a young woman, actually, who was the pastor. She was absolutely fantastic. She had energy. She had passion. She had charisma. She was uh, just great. And I really enjoyed being there and hearing what it was, to what she had to say and how she interacted with the audience. I mean, she's actually interacting with the audience. Mormons don't do that. Mormon leaders do not interact with audiences. You know, they'll get up there, they'll read off their teleprompter, and then they will sit down. No questions, no interaction, at least not officially, not that I can see. I'm sure they go to their ward on Sunday, you know, and have some interaction with people. But so that's where I am. And what I love is being open now to information, knowledge, relationships, and spiritual experiences, which I have now had outside the church much more and much more richly than I had inside the church. Go ahead and run and take take the break you need to take really quick because okay. I don't want to keep you uh, from that. I'll, well, and I'm I'm really close to being done. So, listeners, thanks. You've been you've been super patient. Uh, you've been you've been great. We've had a great audience so far. There's just a couple more questions I want to ask, and uh, he needs to take one more break. So he's off taking a break and. Uh, I'm, I'm left to thank you for tuning in for all the questions and comments and for all the support on Mormon Stories Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed so far uh, this interview with, with RFM, and I think he's brilliant and doing great work, and uh, I appreciate everyone's participation. So if you'll just bear with us for uh, a little bit more of time, we will ask our final questions. Um, uh, to RFM and then let you all go. Sean writes, see you at Thrive, John. Yes, Sean, thanks for coming. I'm not intentionally trying to plug Thrive, but since I have to uh, stall for time until RFM gets back, uh, please do check out Thrive if you want to attend a conference. We've got over almost 1,200 people now who have signed up. Um, we're really happy about that. We've never had an event over 260 people uh, and so having 11, 1200, it just blows the doors off of any expectation, but we want to have more. We think we have the capacity for something like 2,100 people. So, uh, please tell family and friends, if you want to hear some of the finest minds, the, the finest souls within Mormonism, I was going to say the sweetest spirits, but that uh, term can be taken the wrong way. Um, please come to thrive November 17th. Uh, we have uh, Wayne Sermon of Imagine Dragons. Uh, we have uh, Natasha Alfred Parker, Stephanie Sorensen Larson of Encircle. Um, we have Amber Scora from Jehovah's Witness Movement, Leaving the Witness. Uh, Christian Moore, uh, author of uh, The Resilience Breakthrough. Uh, Lacey Green, famous podcaster, YouTuber, etc. So many cool people are speaking. Uh, I just can't. Uh, 
tell you how cool it is. So come to Thrive November 17th, 15 bucks a person. We, we plan on losing money in the event. So it's not about, there's no for-profit motive at all. It's just to try and promote healing, growth, and community for people who leave the church. So Corbin, you're back. Who? Uh, I don't know RFM. who you talk about. Dang it, I blew that. I no, blew you didn't blow that. anything. I went I just, all this way. It's just like you're speaking in tongues. There was some glossolalia <laughs> going on there. What do you believe now? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in anything? Are you religious? Are you atheist? Are you agnostic? What do you believe? What do I believe? What I believe is that for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the darkest night, a lantern glows. Seriously, though. What do I believe? I believe in life as it is. I believe that, um, you know, people want to know about spiritual stuff. God, look, if God exists, he is not the God that we have envisioned him to be. Okay. Um, this came to me a number of years ago. With the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament God, the Old Testament God being a God of wrath and vengeance, the New Testament God being a God of love and kindness, right? And it occurred to me that the reason that there are two different gods, uh, we spend so much time theologically trying to reconcile the two, right? There was an early Christian who decided that um, they were actually two different gods. Was that Valentinus? I cannot remember. It's been a while since I've been doing those studies. But he decided they were actually two different gods. And that that's how you accounted for the fact that they were so different. But really, I think what happened is that these gods, as all gods are, are our own creations, even if there's gods or a God who exists, we create God. And what we tend to do when we create God is we take those aspects in our culture, which we consider to be virtues, then we magnify them to infinity, and then we apply them to God. And in the ancient barbarous states of Israel and local countries, it was a great virtue and seen as a great virtue to be a powerful warrior who didn't take any crap from anybody and kicked his enemies where it counts, right? That's our virtue. That's our value. Let's magnify it to a million and we apply it to God. So that's how God becomes the Old Testament God. By New Testament times, there's a different ethos, largely probably accountable by, for the Greek empire and the Greek influence, the Hellenization of the world, which includes Israel course now the romans have now taken over but still there's that hellenization which is a huge it's a huge influence today for crying out loud as you know but there's this idea of love right so we're going to take love and we're going to say okay love is an important thing so we're going to magnify that to infinity and then we're going to apply it to god and then we have all this trouble trying to explain the problem of evil you know how does that make any sense well if we go back to the beginning and we say maybe we created a god that has nothing to do with anything except what we think is right. And if we go back to that and dismantle that, then, you, you know, I actually just solved the problem of evil on your program. <laughs> this, no, this is amazing. I hadn't thought of this part before. That actually solves the problem of evil. The reason we have a problem of evil is because we've imagined a, job, uh, a God that's 100% infinitely loving and wonderful. Well, who the heck says? Who says? I have no idea what God is, if there's a God. Uh, Jesus is problematic for me. I love the character Jesus, okay? And I love him for all the reasons that the Mormons don't talk about. And that's because he stood up to the religious leaders of his own church. He wouldn't have called it a church, right? But he stood up to his own religious leaders, and he called them out on their crap. And he spoke truth to power, and of course, he ended up getting, you know, 
nailed to a cross as a result. But yeah, he was a hero. He's my hero, him and Thor. <laughs> of course, you've heard the old saying about Thor and Jesus, right? Your God, uh, what's it? My God has a hammer. Your God got nailed to the cross. You do the math. You never heard that? No. Okay. Yeah. A little Nordic humor. So, uh, but yeah, Jesus, you know, he's a great guy, but then there, you know, all this mythology develops around him and, uh, New Testament scholars see it growing from Mark, which is the earliest to Luke and Matthew, which are kind of about the same time, you know, and this is all decades after him to John, which is the latest. And by the time you get to John, he's the son of God. He's been the son of God since forever. You know, you can actually see it developing this mythology. And I want to believe, and I did believe, but then I start seeing the same thing in the Mormon church and it's happening in real time. And I can see it happening. I can see it going from mundane and pedestrian to something that's miraculous. I can see, once again, the example of the, the transfiguration of Brigham Young into Joseph Smith, which never happened. And miracle after miracle that gets created in real time. And there is a, a people have this tendency, you know, they believe something is true. They believe this is right. And so there, you need a miracle to show it's true and that God sanctions it. So therefore miracles get created and it becomes true. So how much of that is true about Jesus versus how much is not, I can't say. All I can say is there's a pattern there. And by the way, when the hell is he ever going to get around to coming back? It has been 2000 years, Sean. Is his watch broken? Does he need a watch? Did it stop? We're almost there. We're in the latter, latter, latter days. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we're in, I mean, when I joined the church, it was the 11th hour. We're, it's 11.45. Yeah, now it's 11.59. <laughs> and by the way, it didn't come back when Jesus said he was going to come back the first time, which was in the lifetime of those people to whom he actually lived with 2,000 years ago, right? And then there's Paul, who's out there writing letters, and he thinks Jesus is coming back in his lifetime. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're talking about don't get married. You know, if you're married, okay, but if you're not married, don't get married because, look, Jesus is coming back real soon, and we need to get this gospel out there, and he doesn't come back. But regardless of that, Jesus' continued failure to come back, of course, the reason there's a second coming in the first place is because he didn't do all the shit he was supposed to do the first time, <laughs> right? The first time he's supposed to be there, everybody thinks this is the Messiah. He's going to overthrow the Roman conquerors. He's going to set up that throne. He's going to rule from there as the Messiah. He's going to be a military conqueror. He's going to rule across the world. There's going to be total peace because of his enforcement. And he ends up dying on the cross. And they go, crap. Okay, well, he's coming again. And the next time, the next time, he really means business. So you get the book of Revelation, right? Yeah, he's coming real soon. In fact, he's going to come in the time of Nero, who is actually the beast in the book of Revelation. Scholars are pretty much understand that the number 666 is a numerological uh, attribution of uh, Nero's name when you run it through the numero numerology matrix. So that's Nero. I mean, that's supposed to happen then. That's their idea. And it doesn't. And, you know, but the amazing thing is, is that this idea is so attractive that every single generation of Christians that has lived for the past 2,000 years, John, has believed that they are the generation in which Jesus is going to come again. That's amazing. I remember once asking a friend of mine who is a, he's a little bit older than I am, faithful member of the church, has a lot of questions, is like I do too. And I said, do you really think Jesus is coming back? And he starts with, well, yeah, of course, of course. And I said, really? Because, you know, 
I'm kind of wondering about this. When is he going to come back? It's been 2,000 years. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it kinda, it's one of those questions that you don't really want to look at too closely. And just say, yeah, he's coming back real soon because Wendy says so. And so does President Nelson. So they must know what they're talking about. <laughs> he's never coming back. <laughs> Sorry. Am I breaking the news here for the first time on your show? I remember being taught by my seminary teacher that this is, you know, Saturday's Warrior, this idea that it's Saturday, that it's the evening of the last, you know, millennia, and that we were chosen, our generation, I'm 50, our generation was chosen as the elite generation to usher in the second coming, and that we would be, we were held in the last days because we were most valiant in the preexistence, and we were held in the last day to usher in the, you know, the, the coming of the Savior. And then I actually talked to other Mormons and found out that every generation of Mormons that's ever lived since the beginning of Mormonism was told the same thing. Yeah, it's the same <laughs> kind of thing. Including the ones that have come after mine. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. And it kind of went dormant for a while. After 2000, the year 2000 came and went and no Jesus. It went dormant for a little while. And that's when Boy K. Packer is saying, you know, a lot of people are worried about what's going on in the world, but you can go ahead and raise your families and don't worry about that. And everybody's going, wait a second. Jesus isn't coming back. Yeah. But now you got president Nelson and he has beaten that drum. Yeah. He has beaten that drum and he's getting attention because this is what motivates people. Yeah. Jehovah's witnesses do it too. It's like, yes, you don't want the apocalypse to come and, and, and eat you alive and torture you. And so be righteous because Jesus is coming and, and it's going to be awful and you're going to burn if you're not righteous. Yes, and he is so pissed off and he is just going to be such a different Jesus than he was the first time around because now he's got the power. He's packing now. <laughs> Nobody's nailing him to a cross this time. <laughs> Jesus coming to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, why, why the church knows who you are. Why haven't you been excommunicated yet? Once again, asking me to read other people's minds. I have no idea. But, um, you know, I had that phone do you, call do you, with... Do, does your state president know who you are? Yeah. Does he know what you're doing? You I don't know him? that. I do know that uh, there is a counselor in the state presidency who is a dear friend of mine. His name is Ben. I haven't mentioned his last name on the podcast, though I have talked about him. I won't say his last name. He, and Ben, and then there's this other guy who used to be my home teacher. He's Keith. And I will say your last name, Keith. It's Keith Wilson. Um, these guys are what Mormons should be. They are such good guys. And they're both a little bit nuanced, but they're both still TBMs, okay? I'm not taking that away from them. You don't get to be in the state presidency by being something other than a TBM, but still there's, there's room, there's charity, there's space made for other people. They still talk to me. And this is why I want to mention them, is that one of the things that has saddened me, though I'm mostly over it now, is all the relationships and what I thought were friendships with members in the church that I had for years. And then all of a sudden, they're gone. Whew. And I am radioactive. And nobody wants to be around me. Nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody wants to find out what I know. All the whistling past the graveyard like I talked about. But Keith Wilson and Ben, with no last name, who's in the stake presidency, they are the exceptions to that rule. And they have maintained contact you know, and we joke that we've been out to lunch a couple times. We talk about things. And one thing about Ben that I want to mention here, recently, when I told the story about the, um, uh, the podcast about the exaltation complication, where I told the family story about my daughter 
And this is, uh, there's three daughters and two sons, but this particular daughter, she was uh, from the first marriage. She grew up in Utah because her mom got custody and moved down there and married somebody else, uh, which is another story. But she grew up in Utah. We had visitation with her up, up here, but down in Utah, and she ends up leaving the church. And I don't know why she leaves the church. I don't think I was that concerned about it at the time. There were a lot of other things going on that I was much more concerned about with other people. And a year or so ago, she says, Dad, do you ever wonder, I'm on the phone with her, do you ever wonder why I left the church? Well, no. She says, well, I want to tell you why. And this is the story about how it was that she is in a family. Her parents are divorced. I'm the dad. Her mom is down there. Her mom remarries and with her new husband has two daughters who are my daughter's half-sisters, right? And she's in Young Women's, and she is told by the teacher, you know, those two, because they're not married in the temple. I don't know if I'm out of the screen here with my, with my gesticulating, but yeah, my ex-wife and her second husband are not married in the temple. And so she is told in church, and by the way, this is a correct representation of Mormon doctrine, that those two daughters, her half-sisters, do not belong to her parents in the eternities. But actually, guess what? They're mine. I am their father. And she was so upset about this, you know? And this is the problem when you take it seriously, like you said, right? That's what happens when you take this stuff seriously. And uh, she, that made no sense to her. She was incensed about it. And she went and talked to somebody else who was higher up the chain of authority who confirmed that that was true. <laughs> Forget this. This is ridiculous. I'm out. And I didn't know about that until a year ago. And I told this story as part of my Exaltation Complication podcast, right? Which only came out a couple, well, three, four weeks ago. Okay. So here's a story about Ben, who's in the state presidency. I frequently will forward them or text them a link to my new podcast, Ben and Keith Wilson. They love listening to it. They laugh at it. They think it's great. You know, they may disagree with me on some points, but these guys are great. And their families are wonderful, too. These are poster, poster people for Mormonism and what it should be, in my opinion. There's a state conference, not long after general conference, in the state, which I'm not attending, but Ben, being a member of the state presidency, is speaking there. It's a Saturday night. It's a Saturday night session, right? And I am at my house, nowhere near, and suddenly I get these texts from Keith Wilson. And Keith Wilson is in attendance, and he's listening to Ben speak on the stand as a member of the state presidency, and he is telling the story about my daughter and why she left the church that he heard from me on Radio Free Mormon podcast. <laughs> and I'm dying laughing. There is a, a, a state presidency member is telling the entire stake at a Saturday night session of state conference a story he heard on Radio Free Mormon. But he, I didn't know, he was very upset about it too. He was very upset about it. He was upset about the fact that my daughter was treated that way and how insensitive this was and how wrong this was. And he was actually calling people, using this as a warning. This is what happens when you do things like this. Don't do things like this was the main message. And uh, yeah, I just want to tell that story. I plan on doing a podcast about that too. I don't know if I need to now since I've told you. <laughs> but um, yeah. I thought that was really cool. So do you think, you know, do you worry about the possibility of excommunication? No. Do you think there's a lot? I mean, it happened to Bill, happened to me, happened mm -hmm. to Sam, happened to Jeremy. Like, do you think you're next at some point? No, I'm immune. <laughs> I'm immune. I have a, a cloaking device. 
<laughs> apparently. Uh, no, it's certainly likely to happen to me. I have had a meeting with the state president. Um, that was two years ago. This past October, I did a podcast about that called uh, my meeting with the state president on the one year anniversary. And I, I hadn't mentioned it before, but I talked about everything that we talked about. He had some concerns and I think that I uh, resolve them with him. And I think his main concern was that, am I out there actively trying to get people to leave the church? And no, I'm not. Um, yeah, it's all been fine since then. And Ben is a member of the state presidency. And I figure he would give me the heads up if there were any kind of, uh, arrows coming my way from that direction. So as far as I know, no, but of course I have never appeared on Mormon stories before. And this is death. <laughs> you know that's true. This is no. death. No, people are out there. They're doing their own thing. They're doing their 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 podcasts. Everything's fine and dandy. They come on your show, and boom, two guys come knocking at their door. <laughs> Isn't that true? Hasn't that happened no, before? No, never. No. You've got it all wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's because, of course, you have so much more exposure, <laughs> and then people find out, and you know, two. What, they tell two friends and then they tell two friends and then finally it gets up to Salt Lake City and then the directions come down saying something has to be done here. But I'll tell you the secret, okay? They can't find me. Nobody knows what stake I live in. <laughs> There's no way for them to get jurisdiction over me. Hmm. That's sneaky. Okay. <laughs> I don't live in the same stake that I used to live in. Right. Yeah. In fact, I live in Idaho now. <laughs> you just threw them off the trail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody's going to fall for that one. <laughs> well, as, as viewers can see, it's getting dark here. We're running out of, of daylight. It's and, absolutely beautiful. A beautiful day here. I cannot believe we've been sitting here basically for the whole day. I was up here at the at O Dark 30, <laughs> and, and John was up as well. We met down at the end of the driveway, so as to try not to wake up people in the house. We went out to a diner. The uh, sun came up. We talked about this. We talked about that. We came back here. We set up. We started this. And now the sun is setting. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to Mormon Stories Podcast. <laughs> Are you surprised? Are you surprised, RFM? Am I? No, the, you give new meaning to the old expression, endure to the end. <laughs> It's an honor. How long has it been up? We talked about this. We um, it, it's been about uh, six, 40, six hours and 45 minutes about. Holy Toledo. Say. And there's yeah. only one person watching anymore and they're dead? No, we still have a, we still have a big, big size group. Oh, I my mean, gosh. People have been tapering off. They always do towards the end of the day, but we still it's a, have a. It's a Friday. I know. People are saying, can we go now? Can we please go now? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Class dismissed. And you we can need, go. And we need to get, uh, we need to get ready for the next... For, we're having a party in just a few minutes, and 70 progressive and post-Mormons from the Seattle area are going to be coming to this house, and I have to clean up this mess. And a few moles from the SCMC for good measure. <laughs> um, I do want to read one comment that I that I saw earlier that really does summar summarize what I feel and what I think a lot of people feel and what your listeners feel. Gene, I don't know if it's Jeannie or Gene Aldrich wrote, Oh, I love this bright, funny, informed, intelligent man. I wish he was my dad. His daughter is sorely missing out to me. Uh, RFM, I'm, I'm changing, I'm making an edit on the fly. RFM, you are delightful and a bright spot in the truth journey. And I just want to uh, second that and say you are brilliant. You're brilliant uh, on the level of Bill Real or Dan Vogel or Michael Quinn or 
uh, Chris Shelton, for that matter, that Scientologist guy that I just interviewed. He's great. Brilliant. Uh, but you're funny and you're witty and creative and you're a blessing to progressive and post-Mormonism. You're a blessing to Mormonism. And, uh, I'm really happy that you're doing what you do. And I really am grateful that you would take the time to tell your story on Mormon stories podcast. And I hope it brings you a lot more viewers and listeners and a lot more money. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate all of that. For, I know you're doing it for the money. When totally really the money. Down to it. I know it's all about the Benjamin. If I am doing it for the money, and I, I make a joke about saying the money, I did that at Sunstone, I'm really doing a very bad job of it. Or as Bill Real would say, a piss poor job of it. That's so you're not rich because of no. Radio Free Mormon? No. No, but I'm having a great you're not time. not quitting your day job? Gene, thank you so much for the wonderful compliment. I appreciate it. You forgot good looking. Okay, but I'm going to let that pass because I really appreciate all the other nice things. And thank you so much for listening. Thank everybody for listening. Please, everybody, if you haven't given Radio Free Mormon a try, if you think you might want to, it's just a click away. <laughs> and which lots which of, is closer than the church essays, by the way. <laughs> and lots of listeners are, are sharing their love and appreciation for you and for our time together so you'll just have to go check those out okay later. super all the little hard things and the thumbs up going all across that. the screen wonderful people saying they love you they're grateful for you uh everybody win brett amy chad jennifer aaron bryce colette ivana amy everyone's just saying they love you so i do too well thank you i love you too and i think you're a damn fine looking man john delin <laughs> whoa thank you <laughs> thanks all right well it's been great to have you guys uh thanks for tuning in please support rfm please support bill real please support uh marriage on a tightrope support all that uh thanks for supporting mormon stories and the open stories foundation i couldn't fly here buy all this equipment and do what i do without your support so thanks to everyone who supports mormon stories and the open stories foundation if you want to see this programming continue please continue supporting us uh, your monthly support means the world. So you can go to mormonstories.org as well and click on the donate button. And 10, 50, 100 bucks a month, whatever you can afford, we will do our best to keep sharing stories that help change things and uh, to make the world better. Wynn has asked me 15 times to ask you who won between Oklahoma University and Texas, University of Texas in football this year. <laughs> you know what's really funny? I'm going to guess Oklahoma because the Longhorns pretty much suck on a regular basis. I was never that much into the athletics. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm a dancer. So I, I don't know, uh, but I'm happy to find out. And if it is UT, I will cheer, but I'm guessing the answer is no. That's a huge rivalry between <laughs> Oklahoma and UT. Yeah. And Jonathan Streeter, it's high praise when he says, great episode, love RFM. So we love you, Jonathan Streeter, and check out Thinker of Thoughts. He has a great YouTube page, and he does great work too, Jonathan. So keep up the great work. And look up Evil Apostate. That's where uh, Jonathan Streeter allows his alter ego, his Mr. Hyde, to his Dr. Jekyll run free. <laughs> Absolutely. So thanks, everybody. Uh, please email me at mormorstories at gmail.com if you have feedback or ideas or suggestions. We'll keep doing great stuff like this for as long as uh, there's an audience. And so thank you. Please stay in touch and check us out at thrivebeyondmormonism.com if you want to come to Thrive. If not, that's cool too. And uh, we'll see you guys again soon on another episode. I have to thank Marty Brown and Mike Brown for hosting us the past two days and for hosting the party tonight. They're amazing. They're awesome. 
big thanks to them. Big thanks to Cody Layton, who edits, does the audio video editing. A big thanks to my board on the Open Stories Foundation, because you guys keep us alive. We have a great lawyer, we have a great accountant, and we're trying to do everything we can uh, buttoned up and as professional, as ethical as we can, but we'll keep going. Thanks to everyone. We'll see you guys again soon on more Stories podcasts. Take care, everybody. <laughs>